that this is what would be needed and you wouldn't necessarily choose maybe that next verse, maybe you go to a more glamorous verse, but it is exactly what is needed. The word of God is certainly living and breathing. Psalm 119, 121 through 128. I'm going to read this one more time. Join with me. Follow along as I read. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come to you once again, and I plead for grace for me, Lord, that you would speak through me and clear out anything, Lord, that would be of my own. I pray, Lord, for the people, for the body, for the hearts that are represented here. Lord, that you would speak to us from your word. Father, in a time of history where we want to add in our own thoughts and declarations to your word, we would agree with the psalmist here that it is time for you to act. Oh, Father, I pray that you would act this morning in a mighty way, displaying your glory, that we might be like Isaiah in chapter 6 and cry out, Woe is me. And wow, what a beautiful God you are above all else. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We love you. May your name be praised. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let me open with this phrase. Your understanding of the gospel will directly impact negatively or positively every single thought, action, attitude, and response to circumstances around you. Your understanding of the gospel will directly impact negatively or positively every single thought, action, attitude, and response to circumstances around you. The text that we're studying this morning is without a doubt, at least in my mind, one of the clearest declarations in the gospel, clearest declarations of the gospel in Psalm 119. It's very clear here that the psalmist is gospel saturated, and this is before Christ, but he certainly believes in God for salvation alone, which is the gospel. The only foundation of this church that can possibly carry us for the next 10 years, or if uh, prayers, our prayers would come true for generations upon generations to come, th- the only thing that would keep us, keep a strong foundation, must be Jesus Christ alone, according to the song. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone can be the foundation of any church, but it must be a gospel that is a biblical gospel, not one that is of our own line of thinking. If you have a unbiblical understanding of the gospel, your foundation is simply a ticking time bomb. 
And it's only a matter of time before that goes off. And it crumbles, leaving many hurt and wounded. And we certainly don't want that in this church or any church. So if your and my and our understanding of the gospel will directly impact negatively or positively every single thought, action, attitude and response to our circumstances around you, it is imperative that we gain a biblical understanding of the gospel. And let me make very clear here what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, at this particular moment, the call of the gospel. We understand that. The call, according to Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. We know that the gospel is by the power of God alone. We've studied this in recalibration the last couple weeks. We know that Christ alone can save a man. Sola Christus. So I'm not speaking of how to come to Christ when I make a statement such as the gospel negatively or positively impacts your understanding of life around you. What I am speaking about is the cost of the gospel at this particular moment. The cost goes hand in hand with the call. But we don't like to see that in Scripture. We like to see the call and then the cost over here. And if you're a really sold out Christian, you might get to the cost. But in actuality, we got Christ, so we really would rather stay at the call. And you're not going to see the cost preached very much, if at all, from an evangelistic preacher. If you share the gospel with someone, it's probably rare that you're going to go to the cost of the gospel. It's probably rare that you're going to go to Luke 9, 23 through 26. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Or 1 John three thirteen, My brothers and sisters, don't be surprised if the world hates you. We know that we have left our old dead condition and entered into new life. We know it because we love one another. Those who do not know are still living in their old understanding, their old condition. So when the unexpected situations come up in life, we got the call and then we're asking ourselves, now, wait a minute. That wasn't in the contract. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I expected would happen. We don't go to first Peter four twelve, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Or how about Luke 14, 25 through 33? Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, Cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with him, comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We don't go to those passages when we look at the call of the gospel. And we don't use those passages normally when you're giving someone Christ, thinking that'll scare them off. They're not going to want anything to do with this Christianity thing. And yet we wonder why the road seems so difficult, don't we? And we wonder why so many people that we look around us in the culture of America are dropping off the bandwagon. We wonder why. Why do all the studies come out and say that young people from high school to college have a dramatic fall off out of the church? And we wonder why. And yet we never look at the cost of the gospel. We must have a biblical understanding of the call and the cost of the gospel. Matthew 24, 9 through 10. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. It's in scripture. We shouldn't be wondering why it gets so difficult and why people are falling away. It's right there. Except that we're looking at the call, which is glorious. But the cost is much intertwined with it. So the question as introduction here is, do you have a scriptural, a biblical understanding of what it means to, to be a Christian? Do I have that? Do you have that? I think we would all agree that the American version of Christianity is one of wee roses and fluffy clouds, pillows of ease, roses, glasses. And, it's not a biblical definition. We look more at the rose than the thorns. But it's all together. I love the ending of Luke 14. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Walter Hendrickson in his books, Disciples Are May Not Born, says it very well. In paying the price for being Christ's disciple, you too must purposely destroy all avenues of retreat. Resolve in your heart today that whatever the price for being his follower, you are willing to pay it. Either that or send your ambassador and sue for peace. It's all or nothing. Psalm 119. We will clearly see the gospel in Psalm 119 this morning. By God's grace, we'll get through to 128. And I don't think it'll be difficult to see. There won't be much practical application in this because I think the word of God, I believe, I know the word of God will speak true to our hearts and that we will leave with a clear understanding of what we must do. I'm going to look at verse 121. To get into this passage and really see what we're going to go after here, you kind of have to wiggle your way into the mind of the psalmist who's coming from a Christian perspective. He's a believer in Christ alone. He's a believer in God for salvation alone. So when you kind of wiggle in there and see it from this perspective, I think you'll, you'll see the gospel very clearly. Look, 121, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. The psalmist is opening with a very bold statement and really a very dangerous statement. 
I have done what is just and right. God, work on my behalf. I've done it. I expect this to happen. It's a very dangerous question. How can he say that as a believer? I've done enough. Look at me. I've done what is just and right. God, you do this. How can he say that? It's a good question. Because there's tremendous danger in thinking, I've done what is right. Therefore, I can expect a result. You see how this is beginning, even at this first opening line here, to click into the gospel? I've done this, God. I asked you to be in my heart. So why isn't it working out the way I thought it was going to work out? It's a wrong understanding of the gospel. Let me illustrate this. And I didn't have anyone in mind when I put these together, but I think they're pretty applicable for those that are here, for my own heart. How about this? God, I've done all that I know to do. I've invested time and energy. I have taught the scriptures. I have sought to keep them from the world's influences. I took them to conferences. I homeschooled them. I have prayed countless hours. I expected if I did those things, my child would turn out and become fill in the blank. Why? God, I honored you. When the other businesses took to low-handed practices, shady dealings with customers, I did the right thing. Why isn't this business being blessed? God, I read all the right books. I prepared for years. I sought to remain morally and emotionally pure. I resisted the temptation to flirt. I resisted the temptation to satisfy my own emotional relational cravings. I've waited on you. I expected that I would have a wife by now. I would expect that I, I would have had a husband by now. Why? God, I've treated this person as I would want to be treated. I have sought them out, heaped burning coals upon their head. I thought it would all work out. That's not fair. Isn't that what we sometimes say? Because we expect, if you're a Christian, it should work out. And it should work out rosy and fluffy. I love what Paul, Paul Renfro said in recalibration a few Thursday nights ago. If it was fair, we'd all be in hell. But that's the temptation, isn't it? When the circumstances around us are outside of our control or don't happen according to our expectations, the temptations to call out foul, unfair, not right. But that's really the test, isn't it? That's really the test of, do you have a proper understanding of the gospel and what you have been called to and the cost that goes with the call? A misunderstanding of the call and the gospel, can you see how that develops bitterness? How you could very easily slip into discouragement. How you could very quickly begin to develop bitterness towards God. Because he has not fulfilled your, my expectations as to what Christianity should be about. But the psalmist, he can declare this because he comes from the right perspective. There's a humility that he comes here. Look at 121 again. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. We don't like to think of ourselves as good, as once dead in our trespasses and sins, as sheep, or as later on in this passage, as servants. We don't like these biblical descriptions, but that's the wrong perspective. That's the horizontal perspective. The psalmist comes with the vertical perspective. He comes from God's perspective. 
He understands. Caleb Dreyer, you ready? He understands. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Go. He said, because I am ignorant. Psalm 73, 22 through 24. That's straight out of the catechism. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? We like to think, because he makes me slightly better than I already am. No, because I am ignorant. Because I am unable of my own in any way, shape, or form. Only by the grace of God can I respond to these things. We don't have this humble perspective because here the psalmist says, I've done what is just and right. And he doesn't say, I've done what is just and right. Why are my oppressors upon me? He's saying, I've done what is just and right, but even that alone is not good. Your mercy and grace will be the only thing that will keep me because there's nothing in me that is good. Nothing at all. He knows Psalm 14. God looks out from the windows of heaven to see who would, there, who would be following him. There is none good, no, not one. We cannot look from the horizontal perspective. We must look from the vertical perspective and understand that our goodness is never good enough. But God's goodness is always good enough. If you have that right, humble perspective of the gospel, you move to verse 122. Verse 122. Give your servant... A pledge of good. He moves from a plea of do not leave me from my, to my oppressors to a statement, to a declaration. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. And what a statement this is. He doesn't ask politely. He doesn't say, please, God, would you do this? He demands, give me a pledge of good. And we would say, how dare you say that to God? But the key phrase is, give your servant. There's that right perspective, that humble perspective. Give your servant a pledge of good. If Christ is our master, then we can boldly proclaim and even demand that he perform his duties as a master. And what a lovely master he is. What a caring father who loves us. What grace and mercy he extends to us. When as his servants, we don't carry out our duties well or even not at all. Do you see yourself as a servant of the Most High King? I don't like to see myself in that. I don't like to see myself as a sheep with dirt and dung and nastiness stuck all around me and in me. I don't like to see myself as one time dead in my trespasses and sins. But what could be better than having a master that knows myself better than I know myself? A master that provides for my every need. A master that has given me talents and abilities and then put me in the best situations possible to exercise those talents and abilities. A master that only restricts me from doing what is harmful to me. And gives me full and free reign to partake in that which is eternally good and most enjoyable for eternity. 
See, when we, when we use anthropomorphic language, when we use man-to-man language of a servant, we get this really bad connotation because we have in our own minds of what a servant is. But when you look at it from a biblical perspective, they're just describing servanthood is really just describing the relationship of love that you have with Christ as his son. Ladies, even you are described as his son. Because there are, there are benefits and rights in a kingdom that are given to the son before the daughter. And so you're a daughter of the king, but you have the rights. That's why you're called a son of God. You have the rights of, of the son, of the heir to the throne, of this that has been adopted. You have been adopted. You have these rights. You have the, the inheritance that would be given to the firstborn son. You have that. Even as a daughter. So you're proclaimed as the son of the most high. I love, I love this pledge. Give your servant a pledge of good. What is he? He's asking for Christ. He knows that's Christ alone. The KJV puts this verse this way. In, in the context of money. Be surety for thy servant for good. Only Christ can pay the debt that we owe. And that is a beautiful picture. Okay, we've got the right perspective here. We've got a humble perspective. We're seeing it vertically. We've got this understanding of what a servant is. And we move to 123. It can be stated, you can only state it if you see yourself as a servant. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Go with me to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Just a, just verse one, so short, but I want you to see it in scripture because it, it, if you're coming from a servant perspective and you see verse 123, my eyes long for your salvation and fulfillment of your promise, then you're going to be able to say with David here in Psalm 62, verse one, for God alone, my soul waits in silence from him comes my salvation from him comes your salvation. Him alone comes your salvation. You're, you're not waiting upon what you think would be your salvation to whatever particular situation you're in. And notice, I think if you read this, if you read it a couple times over, 121 through 128, you're going to see very clearly the psalmist is in a precarious situation. And we don't know what it is. It could be emotional, it could be relational, it could be spiritual. It could be just within his, own, within his own heart. It could be physical. He's actually surrounded by oppressors and insolent men. We don't know what he's particularly going through. But the temptation may be, wait for what I think might be the salvation, jump at it. But not, it's not what the psalmist says. He's waiting stock still. Unbelievably necessary. Unbelievably still. Waiting even amidst the hustle and bustle of the world around him, people saying to him, hey, you should just go ahead. You waited long enough. Just, just go do that. Whatever that thing is that you've been tempted to do or you have a question about, just go try it out. See if it actually works. Just, I know you don't really have any peace, but you've waited for two years. Go. Now, the psalmist here, he, he is, he's waiting. He's not waiting without doing anything. He's straining. His, his eyes are, are tearing up. They're dim. They're, they're hurting because of how hard he's straining into the distance between all the smoke and stuff, waiting to see what is God's way? What will God do? 
How will he save? And we all have these situations, don't we, in our life. We all have situations that we're asking for clarity. We're trying to remodel a house over there. And I'm beginning to understand what it means to count the cost. When you, when you go to a house and you decide to remodel it. Because there's a lot of cost. And you pull off a board and there's more cost. And you pull another board and there's more cost. Ask David Thompson. We're down to the joist and the studs. There's not much more left. We've talked about things like dynamite. And fire. Bulldozers. So, we're, you know, that's, our, that's been our prayer. God, give clarity to your will, right? We know you've got us this far. What do you want us to do? Give clarity to your will. Help us to see what your will would be. And your, ours is a house, but maybe yours is a big decision, uh, a relational challenge. What about you as a young person questioning some things in your heart? Is this, really, is this Christianity thing really real? Is this something I should really follow after? Is this something I should really do? What path should I take? But will we together, if need be, till our eyes are blurry and strained, look for God's hand? Will you do that? Will you look for God's hand to save alone? To fulfill his promise to never leave you nor forsake you? Because this is, this is at the heart of the gospel here. That if you've been bought with a price, that if you are not your own, then you can't step out for your own, with your own means of salvation. You've got to see Christ alone can save. You've got to see you are to be about the business of your heavenly father. You can't, as a Christian, just decide you want to bail on God when it's convenient for you because he's not working on your timetable. Or my timetable. It goes back to those expectations, doesn't it? I got the call, but I didn't expect the cost. Verse 124. His eyes are longing. Right perspective. He's pleading with God. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. He's not sure what to do, right? He hasn't, he hasn't been given that clarity of will yet. So what does he do? He goes back to the promises that God has proclaimed. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. I love, I love that steadfast love line. It means covenantal faithfulness. And it's that God has covenanted with us. He has promised with us that even amidst our failings, he is going to be faithful. It's marriage language. You covenant at the altar to another person. You will never leave them nor forsake them. That is what Christ has done, except that we, as an impure bride seeking to be a pure bride, mess up at times, and yet He never, ever fails in His faithfulness. That should make us, that should make us weep with gratitude and unworthiness. That, how does He do that? Over and over and over again. I slap Him, I spit on Him. I deny his name and yet he loves me and he'll never stop. I don't get that. Covenantal faithfulness, steadfast love. That takes us then to, oh God, teach me your ways. Teach me your statutes. 
we will want to know, we will want to delight in God's law and in his way when we see a need for it. But why would we delight in God's law? Why would I have a hunger to get in the word of God every day if I didn't see it? If I didn't see a need for it. And you're only going to see a need for it if you have a right understanding of the gospel which shows you Christ. God's steadfast faithfulness to you and your failings on a day-by-day basis. And you're not mired in those failings. You're lifted by his grace. And you're, you're drawn to, wow, may I do that? May I, may I do better next time? I want to be in that word so that I can, I can love him more. I can return that covenantal faithfulness in an imperfect way. 125. Here's the third and last declaration of your servant, a phrase we've stated we certainly don't like to hear in this section. He just asked, teach me your statutes, but a good servant is going to not just say, teach me what I should do. He's going to ask for understanding. Verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It's not enough just that we we know what we should do. A good servant's going to know why should I do this? Because that's really what's the delight of the master is when the, when the servant does it out of an understanding of his own heart. That's when you get that heart connection, right? That's what you're looking for when we're training our children. It's not just X, Y, Z, do it, one, two, three. You're looking at them going, I want to do it because my heart delights and understanding my heart delights in doing this because I understand why I should do this. That's what you're going for. And, and that would be the same thing we're going for here is God, I don't want to just go to scripture and just do it. I want to do it because I understand why this is, this is required of me and why this is the best way, which we'll see here coming up in a few verses. Verse 126 We've got the the vertical perspective, humble perspective, seeking, longing for God. We're proclaiming his promises, steadfast love, verse 124, 125. We're pleading for this understanding here of why we're why we're necessarily waiting on God, why we're um, seeing him as most worthy. 126. What what a what a statement here. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. That would be an incredible prayer. Isn't it? And and that comes from a prayer. Of a servant. Who knows his place. Right? Because there's times. In a master servant relationship. When the servant. Due to his. Has maxed his capabilities. In the spiritual side, there are times in life when even God's grace, the work of the Holy Spirit, we, we have, we've maxed what we can do. We've done all according to Scripture and we're still short, right? This problem still hasn't been solved. And so you, you look to the Master and go, this one's outside of my abilities here. It's time for you to act. It's time for you to fulfill your duties in this. It is time for the Lord to act for the law, for your law has been broken. God, as your servant, I've tried and worked at this, but even by your grace, 
I can only do so much. Now you must do this work. You are the master. You alone can work out this situation. This one, me, even by the light of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, this situation is too much for me. It is time for you to act. What a beautiful request. Because the Lord delights to work upon that behalf of his people. Mark Dever um, quoted this week something I, either out of a book or his own personal quotation. Temptations become sins by actions and idols by repetition. Temptations become sins by actions and idols by repetition. By repetition. Be careful because when you get to the the really the crux of whatever the situation you're in and you're, you're pleading God, God act. And you, you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm just going to have to jump out and just try this. Be careful. The temptation there to jump out and try it on your own is sin. And it's a slippery slope. And those sins may lead to repetition. And those rep- that repetition would be idolatry. Be very careful. It goes back to your understanding of the gospel. If you see Christ alone can save, then you alone are going to wait for his salvation. Psalm 62. Okay, final two verses here. Verse 127 and 128. Time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Now, does a servant fear when his master is crossed? Yeah. Didn't do it right. He expected, me, he expected this of me. Ooh, bad times. But that's not this master, is it? And, and that's not us as his servants. Why? Because we know according, according to 1 John 4, 17 through 19, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And let me just say that if you do not know Christ today, come to Christ because only he can love you perfectly. Only He can love you perfectly. If you've broken God's law, even as a believer, come back to Christ because of His love and His grace that are extended so richly. If you do, you'll be able to say with the psalmist there in verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. We should have a fear of the consequences of sin. We should have a fear, a reverence for God. But understand the gospel. Christ loves you. Not for what you have done. But because what God has decreed. Matthew 13. Let's go over to Matthew 13.
127 of 119 is, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. If the psalmist here, you can get the perspective here, maybe he's not standing alone in this difficult situation. Maybe there's someone else or a group of people that are with him. And I think we could put ourselves in this uh, in this, this body, in this situation. We're, we're standing as the body of believers. And, and you're going to see, as, especially as we go along in life here, there, there's opportunities to look over and see this brother or sister, you know, they're waiting upon God for something and they're, they're jumping out, right? They're, they're trying to maybe get a little bit ahead of God. Maybe they're, they're trying for their own salvation in a little bit. They're trying out some things. So they're jumping ahead. And, and you see them break God's law and, and they, in the beauty of God's grace, they come back. And you see that happen back and forth. And so you're, the psalmist here is declaring, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Because what he's going at here is Matthew 13. Or it's declared in Matthew 13 in a very understandable way for us. Verse 44 through 46. The kingdom, gospel right here. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Meaning that there is nothing else in my life. I will give anything and everything up if but I might have Christ. He alone is most satisfying. That's what the psalmist is saying here in verse 127 of 119. Above gold, above fine gold. That Christ alone is satisfying and there's no there's nothing of my own that I can do or obtain in this life there's no amount of riches there's no even right situation right circumstances that are going to be more satisfying than Christ even the most difficult situation Christ alone is more satisfying than the most easy situation Christ alone with Christ any situation is more satisfying than any easy situation without Christ you see the cost of the gospel is not necessarily that people will try and dissuade you from Christ you know I think that's what we're thinking when we think the cost of the gospel we've got we've got the call and then we've got the cost and the cost is going to be I'm going to be persecuted I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be made fun of. Yeah, you may. You may, you may have that. But really, what's going to be the harder thing to handle is your own heart. Inside going, oh, I, w- I want this more than Christ. That's really where the battle lies, isn't it? Right in my own heart. Saying, Christ alone is worth more than fine gold. And time in his word is worth more than fine gold. Then the greatest, using anthropomorphic language, the the greatest possible things I could grab, Christ alone is more satisfying. Therefore, I consider, 128, all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. It's like, it's like, uh, tasting something that's a, a very poor representation of the real thing. You come away with really kind of a bitter taste. You know, go, go to Walmart and Mr. Pibb and, and all these other things that are representations of Dr. Pepper with imperial sugar, right? And so you taste this stuff and you kind of go, oh, that, really, that wasn't the real thing. Well, that's kind of what you're being left with. 
And you end up kind of hating this other stuff for the real stuff. That's, that's what you should be able to see is, you know, all this stuff is junk compared to Christ. So I want him because everything else is going to just leave me with this sour, nasty taste. I'm just going to feel, ugh. And isn't that how we always feel after we sin too? We try something else other than Christ and we come away going, ugh. I feel horrible. It's nasty. But when we do it Christ's way, even if it's the hard way, we always come away going, oh man, I feel so good. It's, it's, it, my heart's so light. There's such peace. You will delight in his word if you see his way most satisfying. You will truly hate every other way than Christ because it's like a bad imitation of the real thing. It leaves you with a bitter taste. The cost of the gospel is manifested at the highest in your own heart where we each have to daily die to self and make the decision by faith that Christ unforeseen is more satisfying and valuable than that which is seen and tangible, the gold, the riches, the desires and pleasures of this life. Alistair Begg quoted in a sermon on Friday, those who are, those ordained to salvation only obtain it by using, those ordained to salvation only obtain it by using the appointed mean to that end. Therefore, all who know the plague of their own hearts will never deem it safe to disperse with that God, with that which God considers to be necessary for their spiritual safety. Let me try that one more time. Those ordained to salvation only obtain it by using the appointed means to that end. Therefore, all who know the plague of their own heart will never deem it safe to disperse with that which God considers to be necessary for their spiritual safety. That's the word of God, isn't it? That's the fellowship of believers. That's prayer. That which God has deemed necessary for your, for my spiritual safety. Let us understand what we have been called to in the gospel. Understand what Christ has done. See him as altogether lovely. Then you know my Bible reading is going to grow, isn't it? And so is yours. Your delight for God's word is going to grow. So is mine. When we see him as altogether lovely. And then when the situations of life come... When the difficult times come into your life, when the relational problems rise, when the challenges, the hard questions are upon you, if you have a right understanding of the gospel and you're seeing Christ alone is worthy and you're loving his word, it doesn't rock you. It may be challenging, not going to be easy. But your foundation is secure. It's on, the bo- it's on the rock of Jesus Christ. Because you have a proper understanding of the cost and the call, which are really one. There's, not, there's no difference. They're, they're linked. It's one thing. So I, just, I, I, would, I would challenge us today, myself, I challenge you. The, the beginning of what is to come here, 10 years past, moving forward. We have got to... In these times in America, understand what you've been called to and what goes along with that call, what I've been called to. Young people, you've got to understand this Christianity thing isn't something to play around with. This isn't like choosing, do I want pie or cake, chocolate or vanilla? That, uh-uh. That's not Christianity. This is an all or nothing 
I've got 10,000. I'm going against 20. You either go in all or nothing or you sue and, and get out. Sue for peace and, get, and you get out according to, to Luke 14 there. You've got to understand. If you're 10 years old, if you're 12, go to the scriptures and understand what your life is. It's not your own. And the only way this church is going to survive is if we clearly understand this. Otherwise, we're going to be very pharisaical, aren't we? We're going to look really good. White sepulchers inside dead men's bones, as Christ says. Because we're going to put on this great mask. And we're going to look really nice. We're going to wear the suit. And inside, we're going to be rotting. Because we've, we, we don't have a proper understanding of what God's called us to. And we're just trying to put on this image. We must understand. Do you see it? Do you see the gospel here? In 121 through 128? It's right there. It's right there. The psalmist has a proper understanding of the gospel because he understands his role, his relationship with God, and also his call of what he's to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. And oh, Father, we thank you that the church's one singular only foundation is Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we embrace fully what you have called us out of. You've called called us to. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous Light, And may we live in the light of the gospel. Seeking not our own. But knowing that when we seek your own, it is best for us. It is most enjoyable for us. And anything outside of you will fail miserably in satisfying us. And saving us from whatever situation or circumstance that we are in. Father, I pray for each and every believer here. I pray for those who may not know you that are here. I pray that they would see you as altogether lovely. That they would see that they are dead. As we, as I once was in my trespasses and sins, unable to come to you. And yet you, by your grace and mercy, sent your son, O God, to save a wretched sinner. Lord, we truly are great sinners, but you truly are a great savior. And we love you. We simply can do nothing else but plead for more grace to live out our lives in accordance with your word. May you open our eyes, Lord. Maybe maybe calloused eyes, eyes that have dimmed from sin. Open our eyes again. Give us a fresh understanding of what you have done for us that we might once again see your word is lovely, is desirable above all else. As your direct relation with us, you directly speak to us through this. We can go to your word and 
and hear from you, the Most High King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you so much. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.